All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Lab Podcast. So this is where we talk about life, art, and, and business. And I'm your host, Martinson. And I'm Judith Domino. And today, we have with us in the studio a good friend of mine. He's a producer, he's a director, and we're going to be talking about the state of filmmaking in Africa. So I'll introduce him right after the intro. So let's roll it. So you guys can see already I'm excited. So it's been a while actually I've seen my friend Iman because he's been doing a lot of projects and his name is Emmanuel Itim, um, Refined Creative. He's actually the founder and the executive producer there. And he's been working on a whole lot of projects, big new projects which hopefully will be sharing a lot of, uh, with us today. And we have, as you guys already know, this podcast we talk about arts and the business of arts here on the continent and even though he's American he's been living on this continent for the past eight years yeah yeah so we'll be talking more about that and then he's been doing awesome stuff on this continent so welcome once again to the live podcast I'm so grateful you decided to join us all right so can you tell a little bit about yourself to us this I mean this is the best I could do just as introducing <laughs> you but just tell us a little bit about yourself you know um, so my name is Emmanuel Atom yeah. uh, and it's called Refined Creative. We really focus on nonfiction content. So we're talking about branded content. So two to four minute documentary type things. Um, documentaries that can be anywhere from 10 minutes to a half hour to an hour. And then we also do production services. And that means when companies or TV stations or networks want to shoot something in Ghana, we'll assist them either by you know, just helping them with their visas and the paperwork or the cars and logistics all the way to what we call like field producing and local producing. Okay. So um, we do a lot of that in the last four years where different groups have come in. Um, in the last nine months, National Geographic has come for three one-hour TV shows three different times. Uh, Apple TV, I can't really say too much more. <laughs> They're gonna release something in March um, that they came in here twice to do. And um, CNN just came in last month. They were with us for two weeks, and Vice News was with us for two weeks. So, in terms of production services, we do a lot of the local producing. We try and field um, the different stories, and sometimes we have to represent Ghana or West Africa and make sure that it's a balanced story. And so, we inform our client, we let them know our opinion, and sometimes we decide it's best for us just to provide services, and other times it's best for us to tell the stories. Um, and I guess, aside from doing production services, which is probably one third of what we do, we also get commissioned with foundations to do anything from case studies, to explainer videos, and um, just really talk about the issues that we face and maybe some solutions we have in Ghana and other parts of Africa. That's awesome, man. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing what you do. But for, for, the, for the sake of our viewers or our listeners, because of what we, what we are all about, we're all about empowering the next generation of Africans. I'd, li- I'd like us to, I'd like you to go back a little bit and ask how you started. Because yeah. like you're doing amazing things on this continent mm-hmm. and helping us tell our story, which is very important. But how does this whole journey start? I think, honestly, this journey started when I was in the States. Um, I was born in Los Angeles. Um, 
in Culver City in a hospital that now is a studio. <laughs> um, it's funny how it works. Um, my mom is from Oakland, but was raised in Los Angeles, and so she is what I would say is Black American. And my father is from Nigeria, and they met in school in the 70s. And they got married, and five years later, I'm the eldest, I was born. So I am Nigerian American, which means I am African American. <laughs> So that, I guess that's my background, but truthfully, when you are someone that's not from the majority culture in America, and for my sake, I live in Goleta or Santa Barbara area in California, and then moved when I was 12, you have that origin story of facing adversity. So you basically learn to adapt based on the culture. So let alone that you're African in a different environment. And so as a kid, you're used to being around people that were more likely older sort of question things. So my journey was really me being curious. In America, a lot of black Americans, a lot of Africans play sports, and a lot of us Africans, we do well in school because our parents, you know, you're Ghanaian, Nigerian, Kenyan, your parents won't accept you, not yeah. doing better. You have to push, you have to do your shoes. So <laughs> by observation, I would see that I excel, not only in academics, but in sports. And even though I'm half black and half African, I identified more with my African and Nigerian roots. So I took pride in that. And so by taking pride in that, you explore things like doing weddings or doing cultural dance shows. So you start filming that while telling everybody you'll be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so your journey comes to a point where you're in uni and you have to decide, should I stay in computer science or should I do what I'm really passionate about, tell stories. And when you have a strong Nigerian man, you tell them it's not the easiest thing in the world to tell someone who's really planned your life before you were born. <laughs> Charlie, I'm like, like, my dad looks at me like, ah, you want to just grab a camera and film? Like, can you imagine telling a father that's taking care of everything, who's telling you stories about what it was like back home? You visit back home and everybody expects you to be the doctor or the engineer. Yeah. What is it now? It's like, in this country I hear it's lawyer, doctor, or disgrace. <laughs> yeah. It did a Nigerian American or Nigerian just be doctor, engineer, or nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it'd be one of those things where, uh, what is it? they say it would be some way for me just to go and say, I'm going to get an education to learn how to use a camera. Mm -hmm. So compromise was, yeah, stay in school, go get your master's so you get a PhD. So at least I can be a doctor, you know, and teach. So the whole thing is go study filmmaking, but then turn around and teach. Okay. And so you have to really figure out how you're gonna survive going to school. And in America, has this thing called credit. Yeah. And unlike here, Charlie, where you have to find the camera and go buy it, yeah, yeah, yeah. you take out some loans, yeah. be in some debt, yeah. and pretend that people won't be chasing you. Even, <laughs> even, even now, I have at least five or $6,000, but I just found out. My dad was like, hey, you got a bill. And I'm like, ah. Oh, Since like, uni days, like 15 years ago, I didn't realize. So the truth is, the journey is difficult. And yeah, there's some advantages living in the States, but truth is, from that journey of being there to working in DC, where I was very fortunate to work for different firms and I got to teach Americans and I got to teach Latinos, uh, African-Americans, in different contexts, uh, even Africans. And then I was fortunate enough to really push and it took me a year because I'm Nigerian to get into the World Bank and into the State Department to consult. So I got to travel around the world and train people but also film good content that either compels you to think about what the world is about 
or it compels you to really challenge yourself. So my journey is one of those where I was always curious, always pushing, but the struggle is hard. Mm. You, know, you live in a big city in America, you're paying most of your salary just for rent and the yeah. and to go yes. back and yeah. forth. Yeah. So the truth is, unless you come from a family that has money, being a filmmaker is nice. And I could do a film that I write my own script and think about something and go, and I'm close to 40 years old, and I've only done that probably about 10 times. I'm more likely to do something where I know I can make money. So a lot of people compromise and say, I'm do weddings and events. Mia said, look, Charlie, I can tell stories. So yeah. let's do some documentaries. Let's find out something about somebody. Let's be in a place that I'm not comfortable in. So we be in a country where, unlike him, I don't speak French. So I have to bring along somebody. We have to go into the bush. So the journey of moving here about eight years ago was one because I felt not just fascinated about some of the stories in Africa. I mean, anybody can do that. But really, my wife is from West Africa, and I'm also, you know, wanting to live in Nigeria. But the reality is, my wife is from Gambia, my family's from Nigeria, and both places, it didn't make sense for both of us to thrive. So Ghana became a place that was what you call de facto. Yeah. Ghana is what, for people that don't live in Africa, Ghana is the easiest African country. Yeah. Um, so we moved here, and since then, I think I've traveled about 13 or 14 Africa. That's awesome. So when you ask about the journey, the journey's still going. I mean, I still want to tell stories that are in my head. So I'm writing more. Um, I'm actually pitching to different groups, and for some reason, Netflix and all the groups are interested in Africa now. Yeah. I mean, folklore and all this. So I think this is our time to tell stories, but at the same time, still make my money off the documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's pretty cool. You know. Let's let's go back to someone's travels. I remember um, yeah, in our previous uh, creative training, you shared how, as a upcoming uh, filmmaker, uh, joining a crew, sometimes you didn't even know how to talk about getting paid, you know, and all of that. And sometimes you, whatever is giving you for transport is for your food, and by the end of the month, you have nothing. You're broke. Yeah. How? Uh, I mean, look, I think I shared. My first job offer with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so imagine you were in BC like 2006, 2007, and you get a degree and you get a master's, and someone offers you 50,000 US dollars. Mm -hmm. On the front, on the cover, it sounds great for salary. Consider that the car I have, I have to pay $300 a month. Mm -hmm. Consider in the US, there's taxes you can't avoid. Yeah. <laughs> you can't avoid. You can't avoid. So, when you split $50,000 by 12, you come up with like 3,000 something every month. You have medical and you have taxes and you have other things. So by the time you get your paycheck, it's somewhere around 2,000. Mm -hmm. So if your car is 300, if your rent is maybe 700 or $1,000, then what else do you have? You have to pay for fuel. Each month it's probably $200. So within the month I had 100 to $200 in my pocket. And then this is America, so if you want to go out on a date, you know, and I'm trying to date somebody, just to go to the movies is how much? At that time, probably 8 to $10 each. To have a meal, you can go to McDonald's and spend $12, but realistically, you know, from the dates to social life, you just realize, like, $50,000 isn't anything in the U.S. structure. It's like telling somebody you're going to make 1,500 CDs here. You know, and your rent you have to pay you <laughs> would be like 12,000 CDs for the year. Yeah. You sit there and you're just like, 
Yeah, so regardless of the numbers that happen, regardless of the fees, regardless of the cost of equipment, regardless of how the company would be, it's very important to understand that like you're competing against people that probably have family that have money and that they're not worrying about the day-to-day like you are. So the struggle is real when you get that offer, you try and negotiate. So like every good African in America does who's not a doctor or engineer, have to get side jobs you have to work on the weekend and you work on the weekend and you charge certain fees just to get ahead so for me to kind of answer your question i was fortunate enough to be somebody that can shoot and produce and edit and maybe it took four years to really edit and that's all i did mm-hmm. maybe it took another two or three years to really produce and negotiate mm-hmm. so by 2009 i was handling budgets mm-hmm. By 2010, after a little bit of the recession, I was working with cinematographers who worked on um, The Wire and House of Cards and other game, other, other shows that were in the DC, Baltimore area. Yeah. So being fortunate enough to be exposed to real filmmakers who know how to light, who show you how to rent gear, how a lot of things there on credit, you understand the system. I also understand that like I started negotiating rates and so I started to understand what rates were about and when you work for a company again you're not getting paid a lot so when you compound that with understanding what people's rates are you're like ah maybe I should go freelance because this guy's making it but the more you observe and you work for a company after four years time the person that might be freelancing might make the same amount as me because every day I'm working and I'm at the company yeah. but every day he's looking for work he's constantly looking for work and I say he because they're worth that too many shoes. So let's just yeah. be real. So honestly, the journey comes with some compromises, but you also have to learn sometimes and work with a client or companies for a few years to understand those things. Um, for this meeting, I had three emails. Um, one was restructuring the timing on when I should invoice. Another one was reducing the budget by 5%. Mm-hmm. Or I think 8% when you calculate it. And then another one was like, we'll send you your money. Yeah. So what's scary is, because I know how to be an administrator, but also I'm trying to be creative, I could spend half the day just dealing with going back and forth on a contract or negotiation. Mm-hmm. So quite honestly, the journey still continues because we always have stories deep down yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. You know? The reason I ask the question is I want I want our listeners or viewers to understand that it doesn't matter which part of the world you are currently, it always comes with the struggles. Yeah. You know, being in the arts industry, I don't know if I would put it that way. So the arts and the music, video, as you are in, in the documentary film and all of that, it's always going to come with a struggle. The struggle is going to be different depending on the situation you are in, but there's always so we need to kind of get that at the back of our mind that mm-hmm. like you're going to struggle with you. I think the, the story about products in general is when I first started working, I realized that well, there's a bunch of us who are artists. Mm-hmm. When I was applying to places like Discovery Channel, National Geographic, most of the positions were focused on whew, accounting and lawyers. <laughs> you got to understand that this is all a business. And as much as we want people to see the story in our head or the podcast that we share or the documentary that's there, there has to be some sort of transactional reward. Mm-hmm. 
And in many cases, the stakes could be high where you invest $10 or 10 CD. People are expecting 20 or 50 or 100. So when you're in that realm and you know people are hungry for content, you gotta ask yourself a couple of things. Like, can you just find a rate that you're happy to be commissioned with? And so if you find work that's commissioned, which is 90% of my work, if someone approaches me and wants to do a project, I don't care about your profits. I care about paying the people right then and there for the work that they do. So I'm one of those that just does that. Now, if I write something and want to retain the rights, and I want to sell those rights and distribute, that's cool. But my aim to create content was never about making money. And sometimes it wasn't even about sharing just my story. My aim, and you have to know what your intention is, was always be curious and find a way to convey stories with people you find interesting. So my mentality was, if I'm gonna make money on this, I have to treat it like it's just a job. You know, it's not a dream, it's not this or that, like, yeah, I've dreamed it and I know I can do it. And I have my stories I wanna tell, but every day, I'm gonna be doing it. So I'm not doing this on the side, I'm doing this eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Sometimes I'm just looking at a budget for four hours. There's stuff that you're filming, you know, it's great and I might film for two hours, but to get to that point, I gotta go back and forth on emails with people. I gotta look on my phone, I gotta look on my computer. I gotta crunch numbers, I have to adjust my schedule. I have to call my wife or my daughter and say, look, I can't make it to this. Your birthday's on the 10th, so I'll be there by the 8th. So I know for sure all the projects, even if it's late, I have two more days to make it. So it impacts your life when you're considering money and when you're considering other people's times. How many times have you guys had a project where the client will change their mind? And then all of a sudden you think you're shooting. Like, I think I told you I have to shoot on Thursday. Yeah. Tell me why on Monday I find out that so-and-so and so-and-so have traveled out of the country. So can we readjust it and shoot a different time? Yeah. I'm looking at it like my whole schedule. I said the days that I think I'm available, Monday, Thursday, or Friday. And so when we say Thursday, I say nothing for Thursday. And now Thursday is open, right? But you find out about these things two days in advance if you're lucky, a week in advance if you're very lucky, and sometimes the day before. So when we talk about money, there are factors that you can't bill. You can't bill inconvenience. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I have clients that come into the country, we pick them up from the airport. We have relationships with customs, we have relationships with the airlines. So they all are familiar with me and the film group that will come in with. $200,000 worth of equipment or half a million dollars worth of equipment on this latest one, $1.5 million worth of film equipment. You gotta make sure all your paperwork's right. You gotta make sure all the names and everything's there. If you're allowing me to go and pick them up at customs and make sure we go through all the equipment, there's a level of trust of people who's never met me, but they know my reputation, so they're already paying me in advance. There's these levels of trust that you don't know, but there's a level of stress because you never know if someone could get stuck. And in the last month, I had one situation where the staff did not know me. And they're trying to charge me fees that were already agreed that would be waived. Mm-hmm. So you're going back and forth and you're calling the Ministry of Information, you're calling the person in charge of customs, all these people that have gotten to know me. And so imagine by 10 o'clock at night, they're able to release us without me paying anything. It's different compared to other Canadians and everything else because once we do this so regularly, we present our documents. 
it's not an issue, but like the stress of just being like, okay, I promised the client this and it didn't work. That extra two hours is something challenging. So when it comes to pay, when it comes to everything else, I'm very deep into the fact that there are things that you can't even think about that there's no way to build, but it just becomes part of the process. So we end up being accountants, we end up being many lawyers, we end up being all those things if we want to make money. Unless you're a pure artist, and there's so many pure artists that are painters and everything else. When it comes to being a filmmaker, you have to wear a couple other hats. Yeah. And I, I like I like what you share, you know, you have to wear a couple other hats. Like you said, you wear it, you did a editing for some years, four years, you did producing for a few years as well and like you've been doing five years you've been doing and it's, I remember sometimes I had to visit you at, at your studio and you were just being there. I thought that we hopefully I'll get some editing but he's just on the <laughs> spreadsheet and that's like okay right this is all part of it and this is what I want you know creatives or artists on the continent to understand that it just goes beyond the skill of being able to sing, being able to rap uh, we do spoken word poetry or pick a cover and shoot, then there's way a lot of work involved, you know, because I have to now write proposal myself, you know, like in the past few months, it just been proposal, proposal, I need to even send him a proposal to that. <laughs> I'm still working because the other proposal I haven't finished, you know, and there are, because if you really want to, you know, uh, make like better, you need incentives to be able to propel that creativity because without incentive, it's it's gonna go as far as it could and then you'll be tired because mm -hmm. you know there's no motivation and money is a good motivation you know like you know someone supporting you is a good motivation so like you we need to do all of this put in work beside the creativity yourself to be able to see you know uh, whatever we are creating get out there and yeah. hopefully and then I like the fact that you can't build in confidence. These are some of the things you can be learning in the process, you know, how you're gonna be because I had to learn how to deal with client inconveniences and then now know how to charge so that even when the inconveniences come, you know, you're not so burdened and so worried. You make room for all of those inconveniences. So yeah, that's definitely great. Now let's talk about refined creative. Right. So when did you start? It's like when did you like say, okay, I'm starting my own uh, uh, production company called Refined Creative, and this is what we're doing. And then how did you get to bring Refined Creative to Ghana and Africa? So I think it all starts back in um, 2010, 2011. I was working for a company called Red Pixel in the DC area. And at Red Pixel, I was what you call the production manager meant I was in charge of not only the gear and the studio but I was also in charge of new projects and everything and being of African descent somebody approached me outside of Red Pixel and said hey you know could you just come out to Kenya for a week budget would be a hundred thousand dollars and I'm like what do we have to do and it's like film a conference I said okay cool 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 so they said well you need to write a proposal and that's something I knew how to do from that company Red Pixel but what I didn't know was they wanted me to demonstrate what I did independently and give them a website and all that. And so I struggled and tried to put up, you know, some YouTube links to something I did with this church here or this event here. 
and like the event was something in Kenya, maybe a thousand people. So I, I did some stuff on the side like that. But you know, you know what happens. It's like you have a Dropbox link here, a YouTube link here, and something with a password from another client. Other things. So it's like you don't really have like a place for people to look at it. And I knew I wanted to go to Africa. And I knew maybe not the next year or two or whatever. So I lost that job. And it was like, I could have got $100,000. And realistically, $30,000 would have gotten a job. Let's be real. Yeah. Another five to $10,000. Because I crunch numbers now. I probably would have only made like ten dollars or $15,000. But still, that's amazing money for a week. Yeah. Right? And it's a good trip, you know, go to Kenya from DC. So by losing that opportunity, it made me wonder, like, how long will I stay? working for different people. And at the time, I was with a lot of people who had different political views, who all said, look, you need to have your own LLC, or you could be a sole proprietor. But the, the bottom line is, you have to have your own business separate from yourself. And then legally, why don't you just create a website? So I thought, okay, my name is ManuHudson.com. Let's just do that. And that's cool, but I'm already working for a company that already kind of has my own name tied to the company. Okay. So the, the question is, do I ever want to do any work that would conflict interest with the company I'm working with? Last thing you want to do is get fired and not even getting paid or do work. <laughs> yeah. So you got to ask yourself, like, look, if that is the case, let me make sure I create content that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. And what I was doing was like training and teaching and doing commercials for Red Cross and IV. So I was just like, let me just say I'm gonna focus on storytelling for people that are not really being told. Let me do the stuff that like is low budget in DC or maybe I travel to Africa here or there. So what wound up happening is by 2011, I was just like, yo, I really need to have my company. And I was working really hard at the, the regular company, but I also knew I needed to have something in my own entity. So the thought of like being creative, I wanted to put creative in the company name. I mean, so you know it's creative. And I knew I wanted to do documentaries and eventually write my own scripts. And then the word refined kept on coming up over and over again because I'm one of those, like, I'm an African and I'm pro African, pan African. My wife, at that point, like, she's from Gambia, Nigerian, and I've been. At the same time, you gotta look around to find out what other names have not been used. Yeah. You know, you can't be like, God with us. <laughs> And God, everywhere you turn, there's yeah, a God. God, God and I, what I'm saying is, yes, you know, like whatever global productions, you, you name something, Apple productions, like there's too many things. So you have to figure out something that you feel like you could be original with, or you just yeah. put it under your name, you know, like Etum Films. Like you could do that, right? Yeah. I chose to be more ambiguous because what happens when it's bigger than myself? What happens when I have other people? take the lead because I've already worked with other companies it was good to understand that I didn't want it just to be about me mm -hmm. so I create refine creative I do small projects I travel while still working my day job and then I also get a job that paid nearly twice as much when I moved to work with the State Department okay and so State Department was diplomatic video mm -hmm. ambassadors going to this country talking about peer-to-peer -peer diplomacy. So you're from Pakistan, I'm from India, and we film some sort of exchange that happens in some random part of America. So I'm there filming, and because I had grown up with different people who were Indian, Pakistan, 
I can relate, interview them, but also make sure they have fun on the video. So while doing that, I was like, refined creative has nothing to do with diplomacy videos, hands down. But then if I get a vacation, which working with State Department, it was hard because I was always busy. But when I did get a vacation, I could travel to Ghana. And 2012 was my first experience in Ghana. And it was an amazing thing where we had people who had never been on an airplane, who were black American from the hood of DC, an area called Anacostia, mixing with kids from um, Ithaca, New York. They're all high schoolers. And they're traveling to Ghana. So I'm like, all right, let's go. And these kids are streaming on the airplane just to go from DC to New York. Can you imagine? And that's like flying to Tamale. Okay? That's like flying Accra to Lagos or Accra to Abuja or London to Paris. It's not that far of a tra tra travel. So these kids are screaming. And you know, you have that one American kid, black American kid, who grabs his bag, and this bag is the only thing he has. And you heard when you go to Africa, they'll sell your bags. So he's like this the whole time, wearing a hat, and like we're just filming him, and he's just kind of going like crazy, like just got a beard. So like my filming experience was like, all right, I'm partly black, right? Yeah. But I'm also African, so I'm kind of upset, but then I understand, you know, because I've been in both. I've been in Nigeria where people complain about black people, and I've been in America where black people complain about how Africans will still, and I'm like, but. God, God. Canadians I know in America, they're pretty smart, they're pretty cool. They're not like Nigerians, right? <laughs> right? And I love my people, but I live here. So, yeah, I love Ghana. Yeah. I also love Nigeria, but I live yeah, here. Yeah. And plenty of us Nigerians are here. Yeah. Plenty of us Black Americans are here. Yeah. Plenty of Rasta's, Bob Marley's, yeah. God bless his soul. Rita Marley. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. lives in Ghana. Yeah. Stevie Wonder lives in Ghana. Like, there's so many people that come here. Mm. Bottom line is, the first time I'm coming here, I'm filming it. So, Imagine going to Cape Coast Castle and you're watching black people get nervous walking around the castle. I'm also nervous, yeah. but I'm the one that has to sit there and have two filmmakers who happen to be amazing guys. One guy's German, one guy's like a cool, tall Jewish guy. So two white guys filming. And then here's me as the producer going to Cape Coast Castle with black Americans and then Asian and white Americans all coming in nervous. They also go to Cocoon and Cocoon, if people don't know, is like the sky canopy yeah. where you're walking across and you're seeing it in like a jungle with animals below. We never see them though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never see them, but it's a jungle. So all of us just run around on the canopy. Charlie, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> Add that to like you have a camera and you have kids swinging back and forth yeah. on these giant rope bridges, right? Yeah. And each rope bridge is what, 25 to 50 meters long? Yeah. Man, my heart was racing. But for some reason, I really love filming in Ghana. And that was 2012. So by 2014, after working three years at State Department, amazing job, amazing pay, I felt as if I could move. And so to answer your question, I could start Refine Creative in 2011. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I moved in 2014 and had a few other projects before I you know, really felt like the company was doing something. Mm -hmm. And along the way, from the beginning till now, a lot of people are freelancers. For some reason, I'll find somebody that the editor and be like, yo, I got one job for you. I'll just be coming in for a week. The editor, his name, God bless his soul. When I say this, everybody might know him. His name is PK, Pakwesi. He went to NAFTA a few years back, graduated probably about six or seven years ago from the municipal area. PK was working, I get him on one job. A year later, he's done like 10 jobs for me. He's always working for my office. And I, I either rented a space or he worked for my home office. So a lot of times 
I trusted him leaving my home office. We got this great computer set up. And one year turns into two. Two years turns into three. Mm-hmm. So like after four years, I realized PK, man. You're no longer a freelancer, like you're a permanent set. Yeah. And with PK and a few other people, a producer named Brigitte and a few other people that have worked with me, I've managed to probably have maybe 15 people work for me in the last eight years. As freelancers, not as staff with employee benefits, I, I can't do that. But they're freelancers. And so these exchanges that you have with people here and the way we find creative has grown, the direction we're going now is more towards making sure we have a good balance of being able to tell our own stories that are in our head, whether they're documentaries or things that we write, or we work with people that we align ourselves with. Because it's difficult when CNN and everybody that keeps calling you. I have two groups right now that want to film right around New Year's and Christmas. And then I have to decide who on my team, field producer, investigative journalist, what are we going to do? And um, we're kind of going to get away from the investigative journalist stuff just because it's a lot on you and you start to learn too much about the country, yeah. but you're just a facilitator and it's not like I'm an ox, you know? Um, there'll be some work that comes out that you realize like, we have worked with Anas, but Anas was a character. <laughs> like we interview him about what it's like. And then the stuff he says, I'm just like, man, God bless his soul, but I don't want to be an investigative journalist. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's not where I'm going. And also I don't want to just tell documentaries. So when you ask me about Refine Creative, Refine Creative is something that's built from one thing to another to another. But its origins are really humble for me to actually not miss out yeah. on opportunities. That's awesome. Man. That's, that's good. So let's go back to what is the state of, of the what the of the the video scene or the yeah. filmmaking in, film in, in Africa. So what do you think? What's the, the current state? Of filmmaking? Where do you see us going to? Yeah. Because you've been traveling doing more film oh. part of Africa, like from your because we we think that currently it's it's I mean so yes the last time I went to town and I was listening to an older man saying his daughter or someone related to him came to me and was like you I want to finish school and go to Nigeria and go acting a movie like I want to go to acting in Nigeria mm-hmm. and he's like wait why not Ghana like in my head I was like why not Ghana why like why do you have to go to Nigeria like we think Nigerian like the the film scene. In Nigeria, it's, it's, it's the best thing to have happened to Africa. Yeah. We don't know where So, what do you think? Well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, look, I have to think about what regions. So, I think the easiest place is South Africa. I've filmed there four times. South Africa has infrastructure, they have great schools. They have an industry for commercial work and they also do films. South Africa is a leader on good quality stuff I've seen mm. teen dramas, whatever, going onto Netflix, going onto the local network. Um, there's a conference every year that happens once in South Africa, once in West Africa, mainly Abidjan, called Disco, where they go in and buy things, and it can be different content made from Togo to Tanzania to Nigeria. Now, we're talking about the money part, and we're talking about other things. The best way to make money is just to go into one of these conferences and make a deal for stuff that's already packaged. So we're talking about Bollywood videos where you could get maybe two seasons of 30 episodes for $5,000. Right? That was a reality five years ago, that was a reality three years ago. Now we have to ask ourselves, when we say Africa, like there's so many layers of countries but also class systems. You're in you're in Kenya, right? Yeah. So but a buddy of mine, Ken, he um stays in uh 
What's uh, Kariba? Uh, what's the neighborhood that used to be Nubians and everything? It's a slum. Buddy that teaches film, but they also have to deal with DSTV, and so they um, basically create content. It's more of this edutainment, all right. And you know, sugar and other things in Nigeria and Kenya blew up. Sugar was first in Kenya, then in Nigeria. But it's about health, so it could be about HIV, it could be whatever. We're still trying to figure out the state of affairs of do we have all this high level soap operas? Do we have all this stuff that is documentaries that show the history? Like the media landscape is so wide and now varied, you know? We got Kemi from Nigeria that's known for abuse videos that shows this, you know, cool film called The Wedding. And I see it um, as a wedding or the wedding party. I see it in South Africa at a film festival. But then she comes up with the wedding um, number two, and she has all you know the major players and basically all these major Nigerian players and an ensemble cast. Yeah. When she breaks it down, it used to be that there'd be one film camp here, another film camp here. But in Nigeria, they decided to like build a conglomerate where they could share resources. Wow. Okay. All right. But Nigeria is Nigeria. Nigeria is what like ten times the population of here. Yeah. Nigeria has multiple tribes. Nigeria has conflict. In Nigeria, like. For someone like me, whose dad's a Kwaibo from the South South, Nigeria's a place where people from the South South, at least my family, moved about in Nigeria in the 60s and 70s. So you're dealing with multiple ethnic groups, multiple tribes that have moved around. Nigeria could shape it up. Ghana, I mean, honestly, all I thought of Ghana when I first moved here was the Shanti Empire. Let alone, I didn't know about God, which I mentioned once. Um, <laughs> I didn't know about Awe. I didn't yeah. So, Right now, the state of affairs is we can't compare Africa, because Africa's huge. Yeah. We can't compare it to Hollywood right now. Mm -hmm. We don't have the financial backing. We don't have budgets of documentaries that are $20,000 and above. Mm -hmm. We don't have camera equipment to that level. We don't even sell equipment anywhere in West Africa to the same level yeah. where you sell equipment in New York. Yeah. Rent. Rent, rent is just a joke. How do you rent here? I mean, we have like five rental houses here, and every time I try, tripods are broken. Mm -hmm. The red cameras that are there are just, you know, misused. We, we don't have a system where a credit card is tied to somebody. Let me just stop. Yeah, we so okay, so we, we don't have a system where a credit card is tied to renting stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't even have a system where you know how to actually deliver to my house. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we could spoof, we could fake, we could we do all sorts of scams to take away the equipment. And because we've done enough stuff, at least I have, that I realize when I do rent my stuff out, sometimes it's broken. When I do rent my stuff out, there always could be an excuse. And trust me, like Martz and I live in other parts of the world. And in France, you can't get away with some excuse of, oh, well, this happened and it's raining. That's why this is late. I need to turn it in tomorrow. In France, what they would still charge you, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't care if it's a car, a camera. What else can we rent uh, in, in, in the West? What, what else can we rent? Uh, uh, a table, yeah. uh, a tent, yeah? So say you have a party, yeah? And you have a party that's in one part of town and you need to return it. It's raining, so you the people that need to come pick it up, they call you and say, we'll just pick it up tomorrow. When tomorrow? They're not going to tell you what time. They don't know. But you know in France, and you know in the US, they'll be like, oh, it's raining, it doesn't matter. We'll get there by 6 p.m. and we're gonna come pick it up. Or between six and eight, you know? So we're coming from a different culture than what is usually the norm for these systems. So if you look at Singapore, if you look at India, 
sometimes when you rent gear or anything, you have to pay a premium up front. Mm. You know, maybe not Singapore now, but back in the day, it used to be that way. So we are an emerging market in Ghana. We can't compare ourselves to Nigeria. Yeah. But we can be smart. And yeah. so I would say the future is simple. There is prop haven in Ghana that does a huge studio setup that can be doing a lot of great work. Uh, there's going to be other groups that build sound stages. Um, I'm looking at it, either building a sound stage or having a studio that is within town. You know, somewhere either in East Ligon or airport area so people have access. Those things cost money, so it's not going to be for the everyday filmmaker. And when we invite filmmakers to come film there, we can give a discount, but it will not be the norm because you have to have the budget to maintain. So we definitely need sound stages. We definitely need studios that provide employment for at least 20 to 30 people. So hopefully what I'm saying is not something that you already know, but hopefully some of the things I'm saying is something new to you. Yeah, so um, you mentioned that aspect of Nigerians coming together, forming that conglomerate so that they could you know, put in that effort, which is something we've mentioned before with other aspects of art where we may believe that pulling our strength together you know, and not trying to do it alone could help us both further. Do you think it's something possible within the film industry here in Ghana where like, different small small production and studios come together and put resources together. You probably build a sound stage you're talking about or uh, put up uh, uh, let's say rental or equipment that could be used on other projects mm-hmm. and, and you know, events and stuff like that. Do you think it's something like looking at like working in Canada, do you think it's something that is possible these people coming together and doing stuff like that? Um I'd like be naive to say that I know exactly the psyche. I think here my observation is I'm very much an open person. Mm-hmm. A lot of the ideas I have I share. I'd say Beth, if I tell you an idea, you could go ahead and try and steal it, but you can't afford to do it at the same level that I mean. <laughs> yeah. I am at that luxury based on the twenty years of experience I have. Yeah. To give out an idea that's so complicated, even if you try and copy it, you would realize you need to come back to me and ask me more questions. <laughs> So, if I say the indigenous show that you saw, yeah. we're going to travel around Africa, we're going to sit down with two cameras, have conversations, and we're going to demonstrate how to shoot the food. And this is my idea. I could tell everybody in the city about that. Yeah. I could tell people to go and try and travel around the continent and do the same thing at the same level. And they can't. You have to raise money. So, for somebody like me, it's not like I'm up here. It's more so I have a mentality where I can share and I'm comfortable. Now, I say all that and not asking to the main audience because a lot of times the truth is, whether it's Nigeria or even Ghana, the secret is you don't really tell people what you're working on until it's almost all the way done. <laughs> yeah. Right? So we're dealing with a different mentality. And I'm not the normal Nigerian. I'm not the normal African. I'm not even the normal American. I'm just one that has a vision and I can say it. So if you want to work with me and throw ideas, cool, I'll tell you if I can do it or not. Nine times out of ten, I'll see a proposal and I'll say, this doesn't make any sense. And sometimes those people will come back to me and want to work with me because I was honest, right? And it's not that I know it all because I said nine times out of 10. That one time out of 10, I saw someone excel. Nicole for uh, African City. 
she was in DC, we were friends, season one, I said, you know what, this systems won't work. Season one blew up. So by the time I moved here, I was working with her on season two. So I will eat my words when I'm wrong, right? But that's about me. When it comes to could Ghana come together, yes, they can, if people feel like they can trust each other. And it takes small projects to work with each other and then learn. Um, one guy I really, really, really respect is Francis Brown. Um, and he does uh, animation with Animax Studio. Um, but what I could say in front of camera is when I worked with him, him and I had creative differences. And it was very difficult because I really like him as a person. But him and I were budding heads. And I'll say it publicly, like, his work is amazing and I want to support him. But as far as me being creative, working with them and both of us directing or producing, I need to figure out how to make sure my ego goes down. <laughs> me with my American Nigerianness and the way Francis works, we work in different levels. And he's very cool with Ghanaians and I'm very cool with foreigners. And sometimes that doesn't work, you know, creatively because both of our egos are there. Now, I say all this on camera and you better keep it all. But I'm willing to put $10,000 down if Francis asks me to do a project when I have $10,000. But I believe in the dude. Yeah. And I bother him now when can we eat, when can we hang out. Not because I want to work with him, but I want to know what's on his head because I believe in him. Now, for me to admit that, that took me probably a year. You know, my ego was burned. So, as nice and as open as I am, I have certain ways of doing things that are very strict and I have my own standards. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, awesome. Now, what is next for uh, the film production that will be working in Africa, working with them? Um, how, what's your little advice, you know, I have these other two questions. So first, what is your little advice for the Ghanaian filmmaker or the African filmmaker to build that kind of capacity to be able to work with um, bigger studios and production even within Africa and beyond the African? So that's the first question, I'll start another one. I guess to answer your first question, quite frankly, what I've learned is there's no use in putting a portfolio just on YouTube or on Instagram. Mm -hmm. It takes me forever to figure stuff out. Really, sadly to say, I'm not trying to put a plug, but go on to Squarespace, build your website, show me the best way, and show me that you're capable. And that's me if I'm looking for somebody. When you're trying to work with another studio, you have to do some spec projects, or you have to do some small projects. But you also have to be part of the conversations of how we move things forward. You also have to take risk and, like myself, working weekends and just trying to make side money, trying to experiment and tell a story. Now, you could build a series, but how's everyone going to see it? Is it just the people in your circle that see it, the people that follow you? Or are you putting yourself out there and meeting other people that are different? So, to answer your question, you got to network, you got to like look at things, you have to work with people you don't necessarily know or agree with and learn from them. I'm going to continue to, you know, talk to you and Francis Brown and other people that are like animators and just learn what's the best way for us to tell African folklore. We all could feel it, we all could see it. We want something that's African like Dragon Ball, right? Mm -hmm. Or Naruto. Yeah. Who's gonna do it first? End of story. Yeah. End of story. It's it's happening. We feel it. Yeah. You know, you have locks, I had locks down to here. I used to bend over backwards and pretend like my hair didn't stand. 
and then I'd use Photoshop and I would look like um, Super Saiyan. <laughs> and it was, this was like 15 years ago. So we know there's going to be animation coming out of the continent. We already do some animation on the educational front you know, that's at international standard. But we need to continue doing that to the point where you're just like each other. There's like the Ghanaian one, there's like 10 Ghanaian ones. There's even an A-way battle you know, group. There's Nigerian one, there's Ugandan one, there's ones in Q, there's some in Swahili. And this is all from Kenya because homeboy's from Kenya, or he's lived in Kenya. Um, and then there's South African ones where we just get confused with social Zulu and all that. We have to have so many different things that celebrate, not just speaking in English, but in local languages. Yeah. That's when we know that it's cool. So, I mean, for Ghanaians, I'm telling the Awe and the God guys that can actually draw and do animations, make their manga. Because we all know that if you can do some good comics, you never know if you go from DC to Marvel to watch them. So my advice for people that are in your realm that do animation is definitely write the stories, draw it out, learn how to tell the stories, and then just talk to people about how to animate and make it live, live action or just animation. Yeah, cool. And my last question though is, what's next for Frank Crazy? Uh, well, there's a lot of things that are next for Frank Crazy. So if we put a group called African Center for Economic Transformation asset, we'll have my team going to different countries just talking about the future of Africa. So we're gonna make short explainer videos. We're gonna focus on educating people on you know where have we gone right, where have we gone wrong. And this is all based on something called the African Transformation Report, which really talks about how Africa's transformed. Now it could sound cliche because Africa's been transforming, but we need to really pinpoint what's going on around the continent. So that's with asset. Um, with a group called African Transformation Justice Legacy Foundation, ATJLF. It's all about what we say is transitional justice. Post-Civil War, how do we deal with conflicts? I don't care if it's in the North with farmers. I don't care if it's post-Civil War in Ivory Coast or Liberia, or Mali or Boko Haram. We're working on a few projects that will show how rural and urban areas have to resolve conflict in the traditional African way. And then, other than that, we are writing and pitching stuff to the streaming media groups from Netflix to whoever. But we're also going to have a couple web series that are based from Ghana. Awesome. And go from there. Because I'll be looking forward to content coming from Africa, teaching, you know, how. So that upcoming filmmakers, artists could relate to this, you know. Because for me, I had to learn everything on YouTube and most of them are American. And then sometimes hard to kind of. Put it in context here, so yeah, that would be great to see all of that coming. Yeah, I mean, if you're good and you have a portfolio and people like me see it, you might hire yeah. or commission people. It just depends on what we're looking for. Yeah, so you're going to talk about how we could do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, your last question? For me, I just, I just want to say, like, it just, it just blew my mind. Like, because it's, it's, it's nice based on what we're doing. Like, I, I get to see, like, I feel like we need, we need more time with you to sit down. This is not the question, it's just to sit down and just talk. But it seems like you, you've been everywhere and you've been, you've been with, the, with the ones that spend hundreds of millions on projects and then you've been here where um, people spend less than that. And so, like, there's a lot for, for us to learn from you. And for those of us who even consume content and are into arts, we can video content like we just we just have to write our stuff and then 
artists like you who really wants to help us make it more creative. I think we, we, the next time we have a conversation, we have to look at how they can report or the musician and kind of like benefits from, from you. Because today was all about the animation guys and the documentary guys. Or you like to drop a little gem before? I think they drop a little gem, but we go into our cell phone. I'll say that again. Um, well, we still have bauxite or lithium or other things that go into our cell phone. Because if Congo's borders are closed or Ghana's borders are closed, what do we do? Petroleum, you have to get it from the US and the Middle East. So understanding what the value is, the real vibranium coming from Africa, would be something that poets can really construct better than us doing a long narrative. You can just mention a few things, and then within one minute, a poem could be something that the poet could get paid for, but they could show their artistic credibility, their imagination. Now, you could tell me why Nas or Dr. Dre or Eminem or Jay-Z, or even Lil Wayne from America, or Stone Boy or Shatawala for some of our people, um, <laughs> They all seem to sing songs that we can sing along with, but they also are storytellers. Yeah. They somehow capture us, even if it's Shata, just for a little bit. Even if you know, Stoneboy might be murmuring one thing after another, he captures us for a moment. Yeah. So when it comes to the artists that are in the creative stuff, what's his name, Serge, Dr. Dr. Something, the guy that makes stuff out of plastic and everything. We got to film him and get to know what he does, and I'll show you a photo and everything, but bottom line is, he's able to capture something that we discard mm -hmm. and make art out of it. Canadians are good at that. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys, I'm part of Ghana now, but we, we have what, you're returning beyond the return. Y'all yeah, yeah. are good <laughs> at making people come yeah, yeah. and look at either garbage and call it art, yeah. or making people see that something's recycled. You know, There's so many layers of being proud about yourself. Um, the vision that I have, and this is something that y'all know, more than I do, but all these different anchors, all these different symbols. Mm -hmm. I was in Kumasi and I was very tired and I walked around and I saw the anchor at one of my um, hotels that I stayed at, my friend owns a hotel. And the building was shaped like this and you see it and it was probably yeah. like a Sankofa or something simple that yeah. everybody sees. But I started looking it up and I was like, dude, Canadians have all these things. And the symbolism came, symbolism came to me just like you see Japanese tattoos on people. Imagine Japan and it's like Shogun and like people fighting and you just have like those symbols in the background. The vision just came to me like, Canadians just need to work on their symbolism. Yeah. I don't care if it's a comic book, I don't care if it's architecture. Just show those symbols so then we have this pride in some ancient, you know, wooden carving, African, you know, this, this, and this. People buy that stuff. People make tattoos on their chest. People are already doing different tattoos of yeah. what they have. You know, they go to Cape Coast. They find out their name is Kojo, or in my case, my name is Yao, and you feel tied to it. Yeah. Take advantage of telling those stories and explaining what Yao means and the mythology behind that. You know, go in there and just make sure that the stories that we might know as African, or Yorubas and other people can be Ogun or different types of gods, you know, from Nigeria. But then you guys have what's that one that starts with an A? What's the, the stories, the fireside stories? Um, uh, Anansi. Anansi stories. What's that? The, the spider one? Yeah. Oh man. And then the, the mischief that Anansi yeah, does. does. You know, so there's some people I know that have created content for that. But there's so many stories that you know, that you as a Ghanaian just know, you don't even show it. And just like Superman and Batman that's been reinvented 
four times in the last 20 years. Yeah. Every time we turn around, there's a new Batman, right? Yeah. yeah. Who's a, who in Ghana has actually created something that could be boom? The last thing I'll leave you with is when I first moved here, Dr. Kojo Yanka, yeah. one of my amazing mentors who's done a lot for this country, minister, university, all that. He started talking about Inspector Vidyaka. Yeah. You say, yeah. I mean, I knew nothing about this. And when you study it, you're just like, wait. So there's like an inspector that was getting in. Why don't we have shows like that now? So the question is, you guys could rehash old stuff, kind of like how Americans are doing it now, but then make it more for a modern world. Maybe something I'm saying inspires you, but someone that's watching it, just to sit down and write. Yo, guys. So it's been a wonderful conversation here with um, Emanuele team. You know, Gita, what do you think? I must admit, it's been really, really like eye-opening for me. Um, yeah. Hearing him talk about his experience and you know, and what can be done in the in the industry, yeah. in the video industry or the movie industry here in Ghana. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really nice having him. Yeah, and for me, I mostly enjoyed his stories. You know, he has so many stories to share. And, Story for know. days. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, guy. Thanks for supporting. Thanks for listening and even watching this uh, podcast. So. This is actually going to be the last part one. We'll be releasing our last episode um, coming next week yes. or very soon. So just watch out and thanks so much for the support. And as you know, we always say, make Africa, Africa great, great again. again.